Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I am so here. I'm a little sick of the snow, but it is beautiful. Okay, so yesterday, around lunchtime, I went out and walked around Lake of the Isles, which is, to my mind, just one of the most beautiful things. I love that place. It's just such a little urban lake. It's not, has nothing to say for itself compared to the gorgeous, you know, Lake Superior or the endless Lake Minnetonka. But that little, that little puddly lake, I love it so much. I walked around it yesterday. So much snow. Uh, it was just gorgeous. I love everything about it. So that's, I think that's, like, are we all there? Is that where Minnesota is right now? Wisconsin, is this where we are right now? Where you just think it's so beautiful and we're completely sick of it? Is that it? Is that it? Well, more is coming. All right, so here are the things that are going to happen today. And we're going to have a really good conversation with Michelle Bob about brains, mood, food. I This is a, a thing I'm so interested in. But also... What's going to happen at 1 o'clock? I'm going to be at the Liquor Boy in St. Louis Park helping them. Uh, I do this fun thing where I'm going to, like, tell people's wine fortunes and help people pick out wine. And um, so two hours, if you ever thought, I really need Dara to help me pick out some wine. This, my friend, is the day. So hopefully this will – it all wraps up at 3. The snow comes in after. So if you're not doing something between 1 and 3 and you want to see me, come down to Liquor Boy in St. Louis Park. Um, and then we're also going to have charred recipes, and then I think we'll have some nice time for an Ask Me Anything. I think I have still – I've been holding on to a question for like three weeks of what to do with leftover mussels. I think those mussels are long gone, but it's, it's still – they're one of the most environmentally sustainable foods. So we will talk about uh, what else you can do with mussels besides steaming them in wine and serving them hot. Okay. And you got anything else? I already got the message stream open, 81807. All right, so here's my main problem with brains, mood, and food is that nobody talks about it. Nobody thinks uh, it's happening. We seem to have this this just constant dialogue in this culture that food is about your bikini body. Uh, it's not about your bikini body. Like everything about food turns on this axis of like fashion and being sexy and all of this and why – we do this is such a mystery to me because our food goes into our brain. The brain is where the, you know, the personality is. I mean, a brain mood food connection is like the most neglected part of the food discussion, uh, bar none. Um, and so I'm really excited. I feel like I should have known about the work of Michelle Bob earlier, but she's a dietitian who's written just a whole shelf full of books on these connections. She's a uh, the, last, the latest one, Anti-Inflammatory Eating for a Happy, Healthy Brain, uh, 75 Recipes for Alleviating Depression, Anxiety, and Memory Loss. So, M- Michelle, Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, so tell me, how did you 
first start getting interested in this? Because you've done, you've been working on this for a while. I have. And, you know, a lot of this is born out of my private practice where I see people every day who are struggling with a variety of different conditions. But certainly um, a whole influx of people who are really struggling with depression and anxiety in particular. And sometimes they're coming to me first and foremost for gut issues that are unresolved. But usually that's sort of something that they mention as an aside. Oh, I also struggle with depression. I also struggle with anxiety. So I started really making that connection and thinking, wow, these people who have things like irritable bowel syndrome or, um, you know, any kind of digestive distress seem to also have this, um, the commonality of having these, these mood issues. And so um, really started doing a lot more research and digging in on the idea that an anti-inflammatory diet might actually really benefit um, mood and cognitive function and help help decrease incidences of depression and anxiety. And it turns out there's quite a lot in the literature that supports that. So that became the topic of my second book that you just mentioned, which is anti-inflammatory eating for a happy, healthy brain. And I had already done a lot of the legwork with my first book, which was anti-inflammatory eating made easy. And I started to see a lot of things about depression, anxiety, and an anti-inflammatory diet. So it seemed like a perfectly great fit. Okay. So it, it is, I think. For people that don't know, um, inflammation is, uh, let's talk about what inflammation is. So inflammation, as far as I know, is this kind of thing that we have identified that connects heart disease, Alzheimer's, arthritis, a lot of, a lot of what we think of as sort of unrelated diseases have that in common. That's exactly right. It's a common thread that weaves together all of these chronic diseases that we're probably most fearful of developing. So, um, and, and most likely know, to develop. I mean, those are the big that's ones. That's right. Exactly. And inflammation is actually a very natural process of the body. So, you know, when we have some sort of an injury and it gets red and inflamed, um, that's, that's a natural healing process. And it's the alarm bells are going off in your body and it's recruiting these white cells to come in and, and do the work to, to heal the, the wound. And that's completely normal. But when the wound is healed, the alarm bells go off and the signals are done and there's no more inflammation in a perfect world. So it's, it's when inflammation goes unchecked and those alarm bells are going off 24-7 in the body um, and it becomes chronic. And then that's when that becomes you know, something that can feed into these disease states. Okay, so let's talk about some of the stuff in inflammation. You said white blood cells kind of rush to, to heal a part of the body they perceive to be injured. Um, and cortisol kicks in. And, and cortisol is that kind of fight or flight stress hormone that kind of gets everything up and going, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And so cortisol, um, same, same kind of thing. We want to have the ability to have that fight or flight response when we need it, but we certainly don't want to have cortisol. We don't want to be pumping out cortisol from our poor adrenal glands all day long every day because that's going to lead to no good. <laughs> so, right. Because then you can't sleep and you can't, um, there's no rest. Right. And it, it really affects your metabolism too. So when people feel sort of stuck with their weight, that can be one of the things that's feeding into it. Oh, good. Then we'll bring in obesity as part of this. I was kind of wondering if we could. A lot, I know a lot of people are thinking there is an inflammation-obesity connection. Absolutely. And the other thing that we know now is that, you know, fat tissue itself or fat cells, we used to think, okay, it just sort of sits there and takes up space. But it's really an active, it's an active tissue that releases its own 
inflammatory signals. So that just carrying extra fat, extra weight also actually creates uh, an environment of inflammation in the body. Yeah, I, I, uh, someone very close to me is dealing with some, you know, consistent ankle problems. And then, you know, she's, she's getting more and more obese and it's putting, you know, it's making her ankles worse, right? For many reasons, um, for the inflammation reason, and then for just the weight bearing difficulty of it all. Right. Yeah, that's really common. Oh, it really is. Okay. So, and you're the only person who's talking about <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's like you, well, you and Henry Emmons are the only I know him as a you know chemistry of joy chemistry of happiness uh writer and I don't know if anyone else kind of looking into this what seems like a very elementary well not elementary but you know an important part of the discussion that we should be having. Yeah, I'm really happy that you're facilitating this discussion and that you see it that way because you know, I'm starting to see it in in my world of functional medicine. More people are talking about it, but certainly not enough. And it should be a lot more mainstream in the discussion than it is right now. And I really liked your lead-in about how we focus so much on waistlines and bikini bodies, but really this whole gut-brain connection is so critically important. And, you know, if you're eating an anti-inflammatory diet that supports good gut and brain health, then a side effect of that is that you actually can, you know, lose weight and maintain weight and be a healthy weight. And be happy. I mean, you know, nothing. And be happy. And nothing sexier yeah. than a happy person. All right. Maybe we should talk about <laughs> <Exactly> your, <right. laughs> talk about building your bikini brain or whatever. But uh, all right. So let's talk about some of the things, you know, what are some of these? I don't even know where to start. Where, where, so I'll just, just pretend I'm your patient. I'm coming to you as a dietitian. Where do we start? you know, shifting foods into a more anti-inflammatory way of eating? Yeah. So one of the things when I teach cooking classes, I always start this out by saying the good news is as an anti-inflammatory diet at its heart and soul is really Mediterranean style eating. And people get great big smiles on their faces because that's really, it does not require suffering. It does not require eating foods that are boring and tasteless. It's really Mediterranean-style eating, and we've known this for centuries, really. But, um, you know, it's the most researched kind of diet that there is, and it definitely is one of the things that really can cool down inflammation in the body very quickly. All right. So people have different definitions of Mediterranean diet. You know, some people are like, well, big bowl of pasta. What, what are you, <laughs> tell me what you think is a Mediterranean diet so that we're all on the same page. Definitely not a big bowl of pasta. <laughs> so... I think of a Mediterranean diet as primarily plant-based, so um, a lot of fruits and vegetables, uh, whole grains, beans, nuts and seeds, and in a perfect world, when we're talking about brain health in particular, fish or seafood would be kind of the primary source of animal protein, and beef, pork, and poultry would be used more like a condiment in the diet. Okay, so but and I know that that can be alarming to people, but really, um, you know, just a, a small, simple thing you could do is just put more of an emphasis on eating a lot more plant-based foods. Right, but not the processed flour and sugar. Like, there's a, a lot of big companies now are using plant-based and being like, "Oh, Frosted Flakes, they're plant-based." <laughs> You're right. That's exactly that. That is true. That's. Um, we need to be discerning uh, about the kind of plant-based foods we're eating. And, 
you know, eating whole foods in their natural form is, is kind of best case scenario, but you still can rely on some convenient foods as long as you're looking at that ingredient list that, and, and being able to recognize what's on there, first of all, and not having a lot of um, sugar and enriched white flour and the kinds of things that we know to be pro-inflammatory. Right. So let's talk about those pro-inflammatory things for a minute, a couple minutes. So it's, um, you know, a lot of writers like David Ludwig, who I like very much, Michael Moss, you know, they'll talk about how the body processes sugar differently. Like the old model of that bomb calorimeter, you put something in there, you set fire to it. That's like a weird way of thinking about the human body. Absolutely. And we're all biochemically unique. So there's really no one size fits all diet. You know, I find myself customizing nutrition information for every person who comes in the door. But what I do find is that if you use a uh, this kind of Mediterranean-style anti-inflammatory diet is a foundational plan that you can kind of build out and customize from there. But as it relates to things that are pro-inflammatory, this is the bad news side of the story, and so we'll cover it quickly and then get on to the good stuff. But, <laughs> but the things that are pro-inflammatory are, uh, sorry to say, beef, pork, and poultry contain what's called arachidonic acid. And you can think of it as sort of the opposite of omega-3 fatty acids, which we find in fish and we know are very anti-inflammatory. So arachidonic acid kind of flips that switch and turns on the inflammation and gets that signal running. Um, and then sugar, and sugar is a big one, actually. So refined sugar, I don't mean fruit or any kind of fruit sugar. I mean specifically like cane sugar, evaporated cane juice, those kinds of things. Very pro-inflammatory, along with dairy and um and then the other ingredients that I mentioned that are in um, a lot of the refined foods, so enriched white flour and those ingredients that we can't recognize are likely to be pro-inflammatory too. So, so sugar, the, the idea behind like why sugar is, is bad for you is that it, it kind of triggers us, uh, what do we call it, uh, uh, the insulin response, your body, um, you know, very little sugar in the natural world, you know, 100,000 years ago. And so your body isn't really built to, to process it. And so it kind of needs to like move it through the system really fast. It's like the fastest burning fuel you have, right? And so your body's mm-hmm. like, let's put some of it away and let's, you know, um, let's, <laughs> right. let's modify our behavior right now because we've got this rare system going on. Is that roughly it as I bungle things here? No, that's that's exactly right. And then the other thing that I think uh, is pretty interesting and can be a, a good deterrent when you're trying to eat less sugar is that sugar has been found to reduce the production of what's called brain-derived neurotropic factor. So you can think of that as um, the a production of new neurons in your brain, so making new neuronal connections and being sharp and having good memory and focus and attention. All of that um, comes from results from having, you know, this production of this brain-derived neurotropic factor. So if you're eating too much sugar, you're reducing the production of that. So um, eating too much sugar can really take a toll on the brain. Oh, very interesting. That's why they tell you to have uh, peanut butter when you're taking a test and not just a bag of Skittles. Okay, we'll take a little (laughs) commercial break here. We'll come back with Michelle Bob, uh, who's written Anti-Inflammatory Eating for a Happy, Healthy Brain. And we'll kind of get into some of the things you should eat, the good guys, uh, the things you're going to eat. Are we all going to be having turmeric lattes for breakfast? We'll we'll find out. We'll take a little break here and we'll come back with Michelle Bob. 
right, so I'm Dara from Minneapolis-St. Paul Magazine. I'm talking here to Michelle Bob, who has written a couple of books on on the brain-mood-food connection. Anti-inflammatory eating for a happy, healthy brain is the last one. You can find her at on the web at eatplaybee.com, which is a very sweet website. All right, Michelle, what what are the things that people should eat? What are some kind of green light, feel good about these foods? I would say at the very top of my list, as it relates specifically to mood, getting more greens in your diet is really, really important. And a variety of greens is what I recommend. So, um, you know, if you're a person who only eats romaine lettuce in a salad, maybe branch out a little bit and do some mixed greens, do something where you get some of the darker leafy greens like kale and chard. Um, All of those are are really, really good for the brain. Spinach is also good for the brain and pretty easy to work into, you know, any kind of a menu. And what's the logic there? Is it the the micronutrients? Is it the fiber? What is it that that about those really, you know, I love all those cruciferous greens, collards and the the kales, all those. But what is it? What's the mechanism there? Um, It is nutrients. Are, are part of what's important there. And uh, all of those things, vegetables in general, are high in folate. And folate is something that increases dopamine production. And we know that that's um, one of those neurotransmitters that make us feel happy and calm and focused. So, um, so the micronutrients are really important. And it's a good idea to do a variety of cooked and raw so that some of the some of the nutrients that are more water soluble, like vitamin C, for example, would um, doesn't doesn't do so well with heat. So having some of these greens raw, like in salad form, is a good idea, or to throw them into a smoothie. Um, and then you can do some of those sautéed with you know some good extra virgin olive oil. Right, because a, really a bunch of those are dish. those vitamins are fat soluble, and so if you never right. eat if you never eat any fat, you're in bad shape too. That's right. Um, and then let's yeah. talk about, uh, let's, you know, I remember, you know, those little, the box, the, the nutrition information on the side of the box, that tells you like vitamin C, vitamin D. Um, mm-hmm. I remember looking into, as a journalist one time, just how many compounds were in broccoli. And it was something like, you know, we don't even know. It's like, we can send a man to the moon, but we don't know how much is in broccoli. <laughs> They're up to like 500 compounds, like all these little uh, little things and like we, you know, evolved eating a bazillion little things and we don't even really know any, we don't know the mechanisms. Yeah, that that is so true. And, you know, we used to only talk about vitamins and minerals, kind of the basics as it relates to different kinds of foods. And I'll just give celery as an example because people used to think of celery, you know, it's a light colored food. It doesn't really have anything but water in it. But now we know there's some really kind of magical phytonutrients, and one in particular is really great for blood pressure lowering. So, so you know, those are the kinds of things that we just have, we, we've only scratched the surface in understanding. And then when we think about how some of these foods can provide fuel for the, for the microbiome, which is the bacterial environment in the gut, um, also critically important for the gut-brain connection, then, you know, that, that adds even more complexity just in the way that we think about food. And I think it's in, in a really exciting way, but we don't need to make it too complicated if we just think about eating lots of variety in the, in the world of plant-based foods. Yeah, and so that's a big thing, that mind-gut uh, connection. And for people that don't know, a lot, of, a lot of people now are talking about the stomach as sort of the second brain. 
which makes sense when you want to, you know, you want to get, uh, get that chocolate bar. But it's also um, creating all of these brain chemicals, right? Yeah. So I think of it as kind of an information highway that goes from your from your gut to your brain and the other direction. So that's the other thing we've learned is this is bidirectional. And, you know, it's like anything else when you get on the highway and it's, um, you know, it's rush hour and there's traffic jam and it's hard to get through. <laughs> it's frustrating. And, you know, you're, you're not taking the path of least resistance. But if you can keep those you can keep that highway clear and open, then you're going to have much, much sharper thinking, but also um, just better function in the gut. So I always tell people, most of the time when I'm working with someone in my practice, we're going to start with the gut. We're going to make sure that we're optimizing digestion, that we're getting the right nutrients in there, and you know that we've got a high fiber, really nice, clean, anti-inflammatory diet to support that kind of function and, to, and then also to support the brain. Yeah, because, I mean, people probably don't think about this, but I think it's a huge amount of the serotonin, which is an important brain chemical, is is produced in your gut, right? It's something like 90% of it. That's right. Yeah, so it's it's a – I'm so glad you're doing this work. Okay, so green vegetables, you would say that's a a good mood food, food mood booster. And then what about, um, you know, some of the ones that people talk about a lot, like turmeric? Yeah. So using just all kinds of different herbs and spices, I think is a good idea anyway, because this is another one of those things where we probably only scratch the surface in understanding the benefits. But turmeric is hands down the most anti-inflammatory herb you can eat. And it's, um, it comes in root form, looks a lot like ginger, and you can also do it in its, its powdered form. But the, the volatile oils that are in turmeric have similar properties to some of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So to use food as medicine in that way, I think it's so powerful. And to use turmeric, um, you know, I, I often will look to Indian-inspired recipes where there are things like curry, because curry often contains turmeric as a main ingredient. But you mentioned the turmeric lattes, which I think is a great way to start out the day. Yeah, these are really big. So if people don't know, it's basically you're you're putting some uh, turmeric in, you know, hot water, and it, and you get a, a lovely spicy uh, liquid that way. Yeah, it's 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 really good if you do. So turmeric likes to travel with fat to make it more bioavailable. So if you do, heat up a little bit of coconut milk and um, add some turmeric, either fresh or dried, and some ju- fresh ginger. And a little bit of honey, and it's just delicious. And it'd be a nice, um, just a nice way to warm yourself up in those cold mornings that you're having there. <laughs> yes, we are having a lot. Of, there's a lot of shoveling, snow shoveling going on, and coming back in the house and warming up. Um, all right, so so you're a pro turmeric. That's a good one. Um, and then let's pick another one. How about a lot of people are talking about sour cherries and cherries. Cherries are definitely, yeah, tart cherries in particular, but cherries in general are really, really good for uh, anti-inflammatory purposes. So uh, a lot of times when I have people who have arthritis and they're suffering from some of those more overt inflammatory conditions, uh, that's something that I suggest they put into their diet regularly. And adding tart cherry juice or tart cherries into a smoothie, for example, is a really easy way to get it in. Yeah, so these are not horrible things. You're not having hippie gruel. You're having tart cherry juice. Like, this is, you can do this. Exactly. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that I think is really important to think about is, you know, Mediterranean a Mediterranean diet is really exciting. It has a lot of color. It has a lot of variety. It has some good healthy fats. So everything that we've done in the past to demonize fats, we're rethinking. So using lots of olive oil and avocado and olives, um, really an important thing to do. And then more recently, you know, carbohydrates have, have kind of taken a beating, you know, so people are very fearful of carbohydrates. And I just want to really emphasize that a Mediterranean diet is actually a higher carbohydrate diet. And we don't need to be carb phobic, we just need to be carb selective, because you really want to have those good complex carbs like whole grains and beans and starchier vegetables to feed the good bacteria in your gut. That's the fuel that feeds the bacteria. If you're robbing yourself of that and really restricting carbohydrate in general, then you're not feeding the microbiome. Yeah, but it's so complicated because some people say, you know, carbohydrates and they mean uh, steel-cut oats and some people say it and they mean cheese doodles, right? So it's uh, um, Yeah, that's what, what I'm saying. We need to be carb-selective, not carb-phobic. So anything that's a refined carbohydrate that has sugar and enriched white flour and comes in a box is not the right kind of good kind of carbohydrate. But fruit is a carbohydrate and it's a phenomenal food. Yeah, everything we said about broccoli also applies to tangerines. So much going on in a tangerine. Yeah. And also, why should you deny yourself that pleasure? Raspberries and tangerines. I know, the kind of, um, well, we've had people on the show before to kind of talk about how you can get into such a food restrictive place that then you're in another, you know, nutrient deprived uh, universe. You know, if you're if you're just saving raspberries for, you know, once a year on your birthday or something, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's maybe no way to live. All right. So, um, Michelle, Bob, thank you so much. So your website is eatplaybee.com. Is there um, your your cookbooks are really, really terrific. Is there anything else you want to leave people with who are thinking about those those mood food, brain connections? You know, I would just say that this, this is easier than, than, it, than it seems. You know, it's small changes where you're just doing, even adding more greens to your diet, thinking about what you want to add more of instead of what you want to restrict on can be a nice entree into this way of eating. And using the Mediterranean food plan as an inspiration, I think, is, is the way to go. Yeah, if you learn one recipe, I always say it should be a Greek salad because a Greek salad is delicious, easy to do, yeah. and uh, so, so much goodness in there. I love it. All right. Well, thank you so much. That's Michelle Bob uh, from eatplaybee.com. She's a registered dietitian who's written some of the, the best, you know, really the, some of the only books, but also the best books on that anti-inflammatory eating for, for your brain, for a happy, healthy brain. If there's one thing I could do to shift the conversation in food, it would be to start bringing in these kind of complicated ideas, things like food goes to your brain. Now, you may say, Dara, uh, you know, 40 billion years ago, Socrates was all, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. This is not news. But what does, you know, what a what a Plato and Socrates have that Shape magazine doesn't know? You know, they, the number of people that are out there all bikini body, bikini body, and never thinking about your bikini brain. I, w- I would just love to shift this. Everybody, have a vegetable. All right, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about charred recipes. I am going to answer your questions. You got anything? You got questions for me? 81807. Dara here. Yeah, so uh, I've got a fun discussion going on on my Twitter right now where I am at Dear Dara. 
Um, this morning, I was obsessively kicking off those little ice things on your car. And I said, uh, obsessive ice kicking disorder. The syndrome of just really, really wanting those ice lumps off. Stub toes be darned, despite knowing these lumps will be back in an hour. And everybody is just chiming in. They look like they'll come off so easy, but it's like they're mixed with concrete. Is there anything more gratifying than knocking off a big snow booger? And then someone else is saying it's one of the greatest joys in life. What is that? It's just like the spirit rebels against the winter. You're like, I will not be taken down with ugly lumps. I don't know. Funny. All right. So as ever, I'm going to be answering your questions. Anything. Anything at all. 818-07. So the first question was, how do you spell Michelle Bob? B-A-double-B. And her her website is eatplaybee.com. And her name is Michelle Bob. B-A-B-B. So go to your local independent bookstore and get some of those books. Okay, so what did I want to talk about for recipes? Um, this I want to talk about chard. Are we still calling it Swiss chard, even though it's not from Switzerland? Maybe sometimes we call it rainbow chard when the stems all have the rainbows on them. Or we call it ruby chard. That's one I've seen more and more, just bright red like really scarlet uh, stems. Those are pretty. Well, all of the, whatever you are calling chard, it's just one of those those greens we should be eating more of. It's a little more tender than the kales and the collards of the world. Actually, maybe a lot more tender. But, uh, you know, I, I'm seeing more and more of it in stores. I think this is because it does well in greenhouses. Anything that does well in greenhouses is finding a, a, new, a new life in our grocery stores. Um, so when I'm talking about these recipes here, use any of the chards. Uh, you know, use a Swiss chard, your ruby chard. You could use spinach, frankly, for most of these too. All right, so this is the basic idea. If you want to know how to use it, I've got – and these are all, of course, up at WCCORadio.com. Uh, you can do the shortcut, WCCORadio.com slash menu or WCCORadio.com. Dot com slash Dara. Those are options. Or you just go to the main main homepage. You'll see them up there. Um, but if you've never had just basic chard, you want to get in on the ground floor, learn how to use it, I've got Tom Colicchio, the, uh, the top chef king, the craft restaurant emperor. He has just a really basic recipe, um, you know, for just sauteing it with chili peppers and lemon, garlic, just the, the easy the easy entry-level recipe. That'll give you a real sense of, of what Swiss chard is or rainbow chard in its, in its kind of pure, pure life. All right, so a little f- much fancier, kind of different. Chard tacos. First time that somebody gave me a chard taco, I was like, this is crazy. Something wrong with you. But then I tried it, and I became a true believer. It's... Uh, If you're talking about a vegetarian taco, a vegetable taco, chard over tofu any day of the week. Um, So the recipe I have up is a Rick Bayless one. It's just greens, these chard greens with caramelized onions, chilies, a little fresh cheese. Uh, It's just extremely satisfying. You can make a mega batch of this and and just, uh, oh, such so good. I love it. And then here's one. How about a crustless chard quiche? Kind of hard to say three times, but uh, very nice. Uh, I really like crustless quiches. I think eggs are fantastic for you. Um, I think they were maligned unfairly. And it's a very fast way to get 
a kind of quick lunch or dinner on the table. Um, and I like reheating leftovers. So any kind of cheese you got kicking around the house, you got your eggs, a bunch of chard. For some reason, the recipe I found says use skim milk. Never use skim milk. Always use whole milk. It's just, it's not good for you. Skim milk. All of these kind of processed, anytime you're taking things out of a food, it's just not a good idea. Just use whole eggs. Don't use egg beaters. Use real milk. Don't use skim milk. Our bodies are not made for all of these very, very processed foods. Okay. And then what do I have? Uh, do I have Lydia Bastianich's Swiss chard potatoes? I do. This is a just a version this is a food that is just served all over Europe, and it's kind of equal parts, something green, and potatoes with garlic. It is just a great, it is special. You think, that doesn't sound special, but it is. Um, and you put this on the table next to some grilled sausages. That is going to get you through a very cold night and, you know, the rest of your life. Good dish. And then I picked for my, my top, my number one dish I want to talk about with chard is hortopita. Okay, so Greek Swiss chard pie. You're familiar, I imagine, with spanakopita, right? That's the classic Greek dish with Spanish, I mean, uh, uh, of spinach inside a uh, spanakopita. Oh, my, my! I said Spanish instead of uh, spinach, and now my whole brain shorted out. Oh, dear. Anyway, so, but hortopita is equally traditional, and that is when you're using chard. So spanakopita is to spinach as hortopita is to chard. And they're just, you know, anything you got. You can have you can get a bundle of herbs and put that in there. You can put other, you know, any other greens that are just kicking around your drawer. You got extra scallions to use up, anything like that. Um, it's a good potluck. It's a good reheat. It's just a good, good dish. Okay. So these are all up at WCORadio.com. I'm going to, you know, take a break here. Try to not say Spanish for spinach anymore. Um, And then we're going to come back. I've got a couple minutes to answer your questions. You got anything? 81807. Dara here. All right. I'm the critic from Minneapolis-St. Paul Magazine. I am talking to you about food, and I've got somebody on the line with a cooking question. Jim Jim in Plymouth. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Dara. And I know you've talked about this topic in the past, but it seems like I just miss the conversation every time. I'm calling about unsalted butter versus salted butter. Does it make a whole lot of difference in a recipe? And my other question around that is I noticed my wife bought some ghee. I'm wondering if that can just replace butter in a recipe as well, or will that impact the taste in the way it cooks up? Uh, it depends on the application. That's not what you wanted to hear, right? Okay, so a couple things. So the unsalted versus salted butter, it's not exactly a controversy, but it's a little bit of an ongoing argument. Um, so the reason they have unsalted butter is so that you can control how much salt you're putting in your recipe, right? So if you're making your famous molasses cookies and you don't want any salt in it, then that. But part of the thing is that salt is a preservative. That's why we salt uh, beef jerky or, you know, fish like hanging in the sun. Um, and so my feeling is that a lot, you're very often going to get off flavors in unsalted butter more. So I always use salted butter when people say unsalted because I don't think it can make that much of a difference. So that's not, probably not the answer that you want, but a lot of pastry chefs think I'm nuts. And they're like, I don't want someone adding salt 
to my meringue, that's my business. Or you, you get you follow the idea. So as far as ghee, again, you know it's got a very different flavor. So if you go to use ghee in your you know roll out sugar cookies, it's not going to taste good. But if you're using ghee to fry. Um, uh, you know, a veal chop, that's going to be delicious. So what ghee is, is it's basically butter with the solids removed. Um, and so you'll you'll see these solids and things like those brown butter caramels. Well, you can't get any brown butter from ghee, right? Because what you're doing is you're browning the, the butter solids. And so did that even come close to answering your question? Perfect answer. Thank you. I appreciate that honesty because what I found when I tried to use that unsalted butter, I don't use it as much as the other butter. So you're right. I thought it ended up having a little bit of an off taste probably because the butter was not as fresh as it could have been. All right. Thanks so much, Dara. I love your show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. Um, where am I going to be at 1 o'clock? I'm going to be at the Liquor Boy in St. Louis Park. I'm going to be telling wine fortunes. I got this big sign like the Lucy's Peanuts thing. It says the, you know how she does that thing where it says the psychiatrist is in. I'm going to be there and it says the wine critic is in. I'm very excited about this. Analyze, analyze people. Uh, Okay, so what is happening here next week? Have you been following all the news on the great insect apocalypse? Um, If you know, if you've been following any of this, you know that the last decade has been very bad for honeybees. Uh, people are saying that very many species are headed for extinction, not just bees, but all kinds of little critters that I don't know the name of. And, you know, they're the bottom of the food web. That's what the birds eat. That's what we rely on to pollinate our almonds and oranges and strawberries. Okay, so we're going to have Brian Fredrickson, who runs Ames Farm. He thinks that a lot of these problems um, have to do with poor beekeeping, but we'll kind of get into all of it. So next week, you be here or you will be not talking about bees. Aha. All right. So till then, may your days be sweet as honey and have no stings. And I will meet you here next week on Off the Menu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.